Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello! Welcome to the Anna's Air Quotes edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion, joined by Jordan Weissman of Slate and also by Anna Shemansky. Hello. Hello, people. Hello. And we are going to be talking about Sukuk today. You get a little prize if you know what Sukuk is. Um, it's one of those wonderfully nerdy bits of international finance, which I've been mildly obsessed with for uh, about 10 or 15 years. And it just so happens that Anna Shemansky is here. So I finally get to nerd out about <laughs> and it's going to be awesome. We are also going to be talking about loftium which is a rare metal that was just discovered um, in, <laughs> in, in in an obscure province of China. Very anchorman. And is going to be, and is an going to be um, a major part, it turns out to be a major part of the iPhone 10, without which the iPhone, wait, maybe that's not what Loftium <laughs> If that's not what Loftium is, then we are going to have... I um, actually would have loved to see you string together an entire fantasy <laughs> segment about what Loftium is. Right. Just keep going and see how long before our listeners... Before someone was like, wait a second. <laughs> I mean, it is a well-known fact that metals end in IUM. This is why aluminium should be aluminium and not aluminum, but that's a whole other... Anyway, the um, we are going to start by talking about bankruptcy, Jordan. Yeah. Because I got a panicked email from my wife, or not so much panicked, but just like annoyed and distressed saying, can you believe that Toys R Us is going bankrupt after they drive every single mom and pop toy store in America out of business? Now they turn around and like go bust. What the fuck? Well, I mean... A, like, insofar as retail is or is not dying, that's going to be the story as each of these com- right. you know, companies go. Like, the, the big box store is going, like, if Barnes & Noble goes bankrupt, everyone's going to say a thing. They drove out, you know, they you got mailed all the small bookstores. And, and then, then Amazon, you, you got, got mailed them. them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but that aside, yeah, so Toys R Us is in bankruptcy. Um, and, you know, I'm sure there's some people who think this means the end of Toys R Us, but that's it's not necessarily not, no. the case. In that, fact, this yeah. is this is the weirdest. Just the beginning. This yeah. is the weirdest bank. One of the weirdest bankruptcies I've seen in a while, mm-hmm. because it seems to be accompanied by zero store closings, 
Um, if anything, the people working at Toys R Us are getting a raise. Yeah, that's um, the part that really puzzles yeah. me. Yeah, although the company is I've... not doing well. Well, but it's okay. We'll get to that. So, in a so, 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 yeah. So, let's start there. Actually, Anna, when you say that the company is not doing well, I mean, obviously, if you're going into bankruptcy, this is not exactly what the shareholders really want. Um, but beyond um, a bunch of shareholders losing money, what is not doing well? What is not going well at Toys R Us? Net sales are down. Revenues are down. They have a loss. Their cash position has declined. <laughs> Do you want me to keep going? Okay. Every number is getting it's lower. Not, it's not. A, I mean, OK, it's a loss, but it's only a loss because they are burdened with five. It's not only a debt. loss because it's if you took out the debt. interest payments, they would be making a profit. Their profits would still be getting lower. Yeah. So I, I think that's so there's the question of is the business like unsustainable or is it just sort of is it declining? Right? No, and, like, and also this yeah. this bankruptcy, the reason that this bankruptcy is currently happening is because their vendors got spooked. Like they could have potentially gone into an out of court settlement, but their vendors got really spooked and said, we're not giving you inventory right now, right before the holiday season, unless you pay us everything we're owed. And then the their bond prices started to tank and then they were pushed into bankruptcy. So, OK, let's rewind a little bit here. Um, Toys R Us is owned by who? KKR. It's KKR. Oh, wait, right? sorry. Yeah, it's KKR, Varnado. Yeah. And. Yeah. But or, or the... to be to 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 give it the, you know, common more, more commonly known as private equity. Yes. Yes. Um, they were pri- the... Private equity is the sexy new 21st century rebranded version of what used to be called leveraged buyouts. Mm-hmm. And. Every so often I have the opinion that bankruptcy is really no big deal and that it's just a change of ownership and the people who used to own the debt now own the company and the people who used to own the company now have nothing and it shouldn't really affect the company very much. And then at other times I have the opinion that bankruptcy is a really expensive and difficult and inefficient way of conducting a sale of a company or change of ownership and that it is something which is best avoided and it's the inefficiencies there are really quite bad for capitalism as a whole. So I think I think it's kind of both of those things, right? I mean, companies go into bankruptcy for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes it is it, it just serves as a way to essentially get all the creditors to the negotiating table. It's almost the same way we were talking about um, distressed debt or distressed sovereign debt uh, several weeks ago and how essentially the courts act as a way to get just kind of act as a system so that they can have some way to negotiate in a formal setting. Um, And this sometimes that's what a bankruptcy case serves as. It's just like, okay, everyone is now going to be in the room. You can't like ignore my phone calls. You can't put this off. Um, Sometimes it becomes you know, really fucking vicious and expensive and a drain on finances. And it really does look like blue sharks picking at a whale. Yeah. And Um, I would argue that it's always very, very expensive. Yeah. There's a reason you normally like to do out of court settlements, if at all possible. And it's because not only would if you go into Chapter 11, not only do you have to pay all of your legal fees, all of your advisory fees, you also have to pay the legal and advisory fees of the creditors committees. That's a lot of money. But, you know, that might be the that might be the only way to, like, again, to just do a reorganization. Okay. Sometimes it is, okay, right? Okay, but everyone, can, I, can yeah. I just rewind yeah. here, you know, back go back another sort of 20,000 feet and say, yeah. given that bankruptcy is expensive and time-consuming, is it not a good idea not to 
load up companies with this much debt? Isn't it like, isn't this an indictment of the entire private equity model, the entire leveraged buyout model of saying, hey, you know, let's, let's put huge amounts of debt onto these companies and run a much higher risk that they're going to have to wind up in bankruptcy. Well, so to me, that kind of gets at the question of whether or not uh, companies are targeted for a private equity buyout going to bankruptcy more often than companies that aren't, right? Like that's sort of what you're, you're getting at. And I mean, and, I, and the answer a, is clearly yes. No, it, well, it's not clear. Um, like there's there are people who have like tried to research this and it's hard. It's a really difficult question to get at academically, but they've gone through these giant databases. And if you just look at exits, right? Like how mm-hmm. a how private equity firms exit, it doesn't seem like there's any higher rate of bankruptcy. It's not more like and higher rate than what? Then like you're like just like it's not an unusual rate of bankruptcy for like companies overall in the sample, right? Like comparing them to non-private equity targeted firms. It's been I will admit it's been a few years since I've looked at this specific research. So if right, and if you um, had but, higher default rates, yeah. it would almost be obvious you'd have higher default rates because the reason they were targets to begin with is because there were problems with the company. There are all sorts of yeah. The question over that kind of research is what happens to companies post exit? Is it the kind of thing where they spin them out? Into, uh, in the public markets or sell them to someone else. And then, you know, they keep stumbling for a few years and then collapse. That's a little bit more murky. But I think the issue is, but but the, the bottom line is it's not obvious that private equity targets um, all buckle under the debt that they get loaded. No, no, right. no one's saying they all do. But, no, but I, or I even would just more say likely than any other company. At the margin, yeah. the more leveraged you are, the more likely you are to end up in bankruptcy. If you don't have any creditors, then you won't wind up in bankruptcy. And I guess that could also speak to the fact when I'm talking about comparing them to other companies, lots of companies get leveraged up. Lots of companies Right. And also, it depends. The amount of leverage you have in your balance sheet, how problematic that is, is going to depend on the type of company you are. Because yeah. a lot of very, very stable companies have a ton of leverage in their balance sheets, and it's fine. Because they're very stable, they have tremendous market share. That's fine. If you're talking about a retailer, I mean, I'm going to push back a little bit on that. I mean, it's sustainable, and obviously, there are compelling tax reasons why companies and it's way cheaper. Want debt exa- financing's cheaper? Uh, well, well, partly for tax the, reasons. The, yeah. yeah, for tax reasons. It's not just for tax reasons. The the um, you know the blended cost of capital is is lower, but I feel like that's a bug rather than a feature in the system. And I'm, you know, I'd much rather move towards a kind of Medigliani Miller Nirvana where everyone can just fund themselves with equity at the same cost. And you wouldn't have these extra bankruptcy and debt related costs burdening the system. We are so close to getting back to our tax <laughs> argument. Like we're, we're like teetering yeah, towards like, it. I would just like to, I, I we will, we will talk about that another day though. I, I, I see, I mean, I think like this comes back to just like, you know, being a little bit, I, I see where you're, where you're coming from. Like you want companies not to buckle because of financial engineering and it seems stupid and, and wasteful for that to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think like that, that drives a lot of people's instincts. The question is like, does this kind of debt financing have some sort of positive social good where all these private equity companies are actually making them run better or coming up? And like that's I, I which I think is is dubious. Some yeah, people have argued it that pro- yeah, some people have argued that private equity does like make economies more and like have tried to show again academically with regressions that like they make economies like run more efficiently and whatnot. And but, sometimes they do and sometimes yeah. they don't. It, it also depends on how the private equity company is run. Yeah. I, I guess the question is like if it's ever realistic for us to get to that nirvana where all all uh you know financing is treated equally because the tax system is totally neutral towards it and yada yada yada. So Back to Toys R Us, though. Like, yeah. I see a headline. Toys R Us are 
is declaring bankruptcy and everyone's like, this is clearly bad for Toys R Us. Is it clearly bad for Toys R Us? I don't think it is because, again, they have so and this is um, our favorite. Matt Levine was writing about this. And but so his take was sort of, uh, you know, OK, they're going to reorganize their debts and, and figure themselves out. They have about a 500. If you take away their interest payments, they're making 500 million dollars a year, supposedly. So at least they can get back on their feet. Granted, you have to figure out if the suppliers are going to keep working with them and if, you know, if, if they're not going to pull the plug. Um, I went back and kind of scoped out a little bit more because I, I just that just made me wonder about the question of do companies typically uh, actually emerge OK from bankruptcy? Um, and for many years, the uh, conventional wisdom was that almost never like there used to be this stat that only 17 percent of companies came out of Chapter 11 with even a reorganization plan, much less a plan that actually then succeeded in later years. So it used to be thought of as sort of a death sentence. Um, more recently, in research by uh, like Elizabeth Warren, for instance, of all like Senator Elizabeth Warren back when she was at Harvard, found that if you take out companies that are clearly, clearly hopeless from the equation that like just go in and don't have a like chance in hell of ever reorganizing actually the success rate is pretty high it's like gets into like 60s 70s they get to a reorganization plan they can try to get back on their feet it seems like uh it seems like given that they are making money they have their business has not died out yet at the hands of amazon uh the toys r us is the kind of uh firm that would be more likely to survive i mean so at some point we're probably going to have like an airlines edition uh, <laughs> yeah but the airlines are the classic ones who just a serial bankruptcy filers yeah. and they yeah. and they go in and out and in and out of bankruptcy and it's just part of the business model it seems um it didn't seem to do a huge amount of harm to or Donald Trump. and GM no you know um yeah. <laughs> that was his that seriously was his business it was, model yeah. I, I don't think that's true to I, some extent I don't I don't think value and I don't think that he um I, I don't think it's easy to point to a Donald Trump company which declared bankruptcy and then came out the other side remotely healthy mm, that's true he took the money and ran afterwards right. often or like got by away from the skin of his teeth i think i he, think he's the prime example of someone who starts yeah. up a company it goes bad it goes bankrupt and then it dies oh i mean the, the casinos were around afterwards barely and then they all wound up dying <laughs> Feels like they were a shell of their former <laughs> selves <laughs> no, the former really glory <laughs> And yeah, okay. so, yeah, I feel like if you want, you know, if you want a success story of bankruptcy, you're much better looking at General Motors of than course, you are yes. looking yeah. at, you know, the Taj Mahal in Atlantic City. Yeah, that's yes, less government enough. involvement in the Taj Mahal. <laughs> although, <laughs> although General Motors is a little bit different because they had yeah. the kind of government facilitated. It's very different. And yeah. they were actually they were often kind of. um I mean, the reason you had a government facilitate bankruptcy is because people thought a car company specifically could not survive the process. Um, not because, oh, well, partly because of uh, their vendors. That was, you know, that the, they wouldn't be able to get their goddamn parts. But then also the customers wouldn't buy cars that they didn't know there'd be a warranty on them or there wouldn't be someone to service them in a few years. So there are questions for you know, some industries, mm -hmm. uh, you know, whether or not this is actually a process that will help kill the company. I certainly don't think that Toys R Us, you know, this holiday season needs to worry too much about consumers buying their toys elsewhere just because they know that the company is in bankruptcy. I don't think computers really uh, no, consumers think, really care that much. What's the hot toy? What is the hot toy this? I... Email us sleepmoney at sleep.com <laughs> yes. and tell us what is the hot toy this year because we want to start um there's always a hot toy. I thought there were, is it just like just something the on the screen? <laughs> like, <laughs> the, hot, <laughs> yeah, the hot toy is yeah. Statistically speaking there is always a hot toy because you can't 
predict these things. No. The, but, the weird but, thing about the hot toy, this is my favorite factoid about hot toys, yeah. is that the biggest selling toys year in and year out are Monopoly and Barbie and all of these toys where the demand is enormous, but it's Spread. also predictably enormous. So yeah. they can easily make more than enough of them to fulfill demand. And the point about hot toys is that demand is much lower than it is for Barbies, but because it wasn't predictably high, the demand is much higher than the supply, and so everyone starts right. I, I just think we're fighting with each other. Way past the era, the, like the the glory days of the hot toy, where you would actually see like oh, fist, yeah. fisticuffs at Toys R Us. Totally, where and they I mean, would have to have like security amped up, or because like right. otherwise the moms are going to tear each other to shreds trying to get a hold of an Elmo or something. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, if you look at um, um, Toys R Us's, you know, segments where they make money from, they make mo- most of their money from. Baby from goods for babies. They oh, that's do, right. They only own like fifteen percent. Only yeah. like fifteen percent of their revenues are from core toy. Like forty nine percent of their revenues are from baby. Really? Yeah. I love. I love the fact that we've managed to get the phrase "core, core. toy" that's into, into this podcast. Yeah. Core toy. All right. This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery which is a podcast company and it makes a podcast called The Best One Yet and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. Do you want to hear about the $100 wedding dress that saved Abercrombie or which real tech acquisition is like Game of Thrones or the one financial equation that can finally solve climate change? That's the kind of stuff you find on The Best One Yet. So be in the know this year by starting your morning with The Best One Yet every weekday. Follow The Best One Yet on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business. So, Jordan. Yeah. You you seem to believe that loftium is something other than a rare metal in an obscure province of China. Yeah, it's an old ship from the Civil War era. (laughs) That's... Right, Anna. It's, it's definitely one of those weird yes. names. It could be just about anything. Anna, what is Loftium? But alas, <laughs> Loftium is a startup. No, I know, I know, not a Silicon a, Valley startup a, or or a uh, Seattle startup. A startup with a really good PR operation, yes. from what I can tell, because like six articles in large publications all came out at the same time mm-hmm. about this one damn startup, and it seems like they didn't know about each other. So. Yes. <laughs> like, anyway, so essentially, it's a startup that's saying they will give. Um, individuals up to $50,000 for a down payment on a home, but then the borrower has to list that home on Airbnb and share the Airbnb proceeds with Loftium. Yeah, for three years. Yes. And it needs to be on there every, it needs to be listed every single day. Except for three three days. (laughs) Except for eight days per year. Oh, it does eight. You get 24 days over the three years that you don't have to list your spare room. It's a lot of strangers. <laughs> a lot. Yeah. I mean, even if even if you don't fill it all those days, you're absolutely right. It's a lot of strangers. But the idea is what this is being sold as is a way for people to be able to rustle up a down payment. The Loftium will give you whatever it is, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars, and that's going to be enough 
to enable you to make the down payment on that dream home that you always wanted and you might not otherwise be able to afford. Right. And they were trying to tie it to discussions of student loans, too, mm-hmm. saying, well, the reason that people can't um, come up with down payments is because they're paying too much money on student loans. So here now, Lofty, and we're coming to help all of these poor, um, these poor former students. I mean, that's not totally untrue. I think like, I mean, the student loan part, the, the uh, you know, that's not exactly altruism here. It's more like they're seizing a market opportunity. Oh, no, I agree. That's just, that's how they're kind of, they're smart. They're marketing yeah. themselves. Although uh, I do wonder, and I don't know exactly the statistics yeah. of how much do student loans actually... It's murky. I could Right, we, because we could, if you look up the median student yeah. loan payment, it's like 200 bucks a no. month, which is not nothing. But it's like two nights on Airbnb. It's not enough. Yeah. It's not the kind of thing... That where you would need to rent out your spare room continually on Airbnb for three years in order to well, be able par- to cover. The point isn't that they their student loan payments are preventing them from you know paying the mortgage interest or something e- each month. The, the issue is that they've been paying student loan interest for years, and so they haven't been able to accumulate the down payment. That's what it's fixing. Right. I just wonder if the reason that people are not able to come up with a down payment is actually because of student loan payments, or it's more because wages are lower. Because again, if you look at average student loan payments, they're not by any means negligible, but they're not... I, I, I wouldn't... I don't, and, and so I would and say I think people have been yeah, trying to untangle this for yeah. a while, and it's like... I think the answer is like a little of column A, a little right. of column That's B. Probably and true. a little of column C, which is house prices going up. Yes. yes. Yeah. And the higher the house prices, the higher the down payment. Especially in right. Seattle. Um, yes. Somewhere like, you know, where the housing market has just gone fucking crazy. So it's sort so, of the intersection of all so these So my, my take on Loftium is that it's bad for everybody. Okay. Um, <laughs> because it, you hate it, home ownership. <laughs> it's it's shit, and I hate it, and we should we know kill it with fire. We know where this conversation is going. <laughs> and let's, okay, let's hear it, Felix. Let's yep. kill, um, Felix is going to kill Loftium with fire. Let's hear why. So, okay. so the, <laughs> With fire and fury. <laughs> so <laughs> I, think, I think it's going to fail everyone. I think, <laughs> I think it's going to fail the people who are trying to buy a home and who are a little bit desperate to rustle up a down payment and then find themselves burdened with this three-year contract forcing them to rent out a spare room at all hours of the you know year and it's going to immiserate those homeowners unless they happen to be like that tiny percentage of the population who really loves having a bunch of strangers yeah. come through their house R- running an, like, uh, like running a bnb is actually work exactly <laughs> so so you you wind up it's not just renting out your room you're actually running a business at that point and what's more you're not getting most of the revenues of that business most of the revenues of that business are going to someone else it's a weird form of indentured servitude which i feel most people are going to be quite unhappy about that's the homeowner side of it being bad. On the loftium side of it, I think they are going to find pretty quickly that there's a big adverse selection problem going on here and that the only people who wind up taking them up on this kind of obviously bad offer are the kind of people who ultimately won't end up giving them a huge profit and might in fact wind up saddling them with losses right because because like it's hard to rent out rooms and if you don't rent out your room beautifully then you wind up getting a bunch of negative feedback on airbnb and airbnb doesn't surface your thing so i was wondering like isn't the strategy here to tank like isn't it like to rack up those negative because this is the biggest problem with this entire business model is that loftium is saying they're taking on all the risk if you can't rent your room out 
for whatever reason, because there isn't appetite. Or because you have massive negative reviews. Right, exactly. Just like then, put one dead bed bug <laughs> in the room. Right, and then you're, 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 you're golden. Good. You're good. Yeah, that, and that'll then, be on the review and they're done. Exactly, the the exactly. And then Loftium says they're taking on all of that risk. Like, why would anyone invest in that company? Like, that makes zero sense. And then all they're saying is that they would potentially have, like, a second lien on the mortgage, which is useless. Like, what? Yeah. Well, like, I have a question. Are there... So this is the question I, I would have wanted to ask Loftian, which is like, are there any performance standards? Like, do you have is there something saying that if you are clearly trying to keep people away from your home by like, you know, right. <laughs> like the pictures like having rabid dogs outside. Yeah, or like, you know, the pictures like the bed with like, you know, fucking the clown from it sitting on it. Like Some blood that. spilled around. Yeah. Like, you know, is that a, do you have anything to prevent that? Are there like standards here? I assume there has to be like some good faith thing in the contract maybe and you know we don't know how these things are being underwritten but i find it hard to believe this is going to scale particularly easily and i do think that the model i mean so in brooklyn it's quite common for people to buy a brownstone with a garden apartment and to Mm -hmm. rent out the garden apartment and to use the rental Mm -hmm. income from the garden apartment to pay the mortgage like that 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 kind of model of like I'm going to buy something which is a bit bigger than I need and rent out the excess and that will help me pay for the thing that I bought in principle is not a bad model yeah but what it only works in very specific cases where there's a reasonably physically separate bit of your home yeah. which is mm-hmm. easy to rent out and you don't really need to have a lot of contact with the people who are in it and in that and and that doesn't actually include most homes so if you're interested in buying a home which happens to have some kind of a granny flat and you and you go up to loftium and say oh this ha- I, my home has this granny flat that i want to buy and i can rent it out and i won't really have to meet these people very often granny flat <laughs> Well, uh, do you I not think have I know. granny flats in this country. No, I mean that there there are actually so many la- like social layers like, like <laughs> yes. of context like that you your granny would be living above you in your own home. This right. is like I anyway, continue, I I think I think I understand what you mean though. This is <laughs> um you know, it, I just don't think that most of the housing stock in this country lends itself to this model. No, I totally no, I, I agree. I definitely yeah. agree. I think um it is interesting though that Loftium does kind of want to send people back to like the 19th century boarding house yes. like model. <laughs> yeah. Like my border. Yeah, we're all living in like some fucking Irish drama yeah, like, <laughs> from like the you know, pre independence era. Like, yeah. <laughs> and then just to make this even worse, <laughs> the entire Loftium business model seems to be based on what you might call Airbnb 1.0, where you're like renting out a spare room, yeah, as right. opposed to Airbnb 2.0, where we're at right now, which is renting out your entire yes. house. I think that Airbnb's Airbnb 1.0 is still like a going concern. It's mm-hmm. not like that's been totally abandoned, and it's not like they're going. I feel like they're going to keep that around, if only for like nostalgic purposes, right? Like, and because some cities require them that too. too. Yeah, also for which regulatory. Is, yeah, terms. and yeah. this, yeah, and this is also a separate issue to think about, though, is that right now this is based on the idea that in so many of these different states and cities and municipalities, you can continue to rent out your rooms in Airbnb in this way, which we don't know if that's going to be the case yeah, what, two, three, four the, years the, from the, now. The real smart move here is to take out your Loftium deal and then immediately lobby your local government to <laughs> yes. make Airbnb illegal, at which point at which point you go, I'm sorry, I'm just not allowed to. <laughs> yeah, what do you want me to do? That's so good. That's so, so good. 
Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, Anna. You so get to nerd. Yay! We get to nerd. All I'm right. very excited. This is so excited. Sukuk, a.k.a. Islamic finance. Yes. Islamic. Yeah, they're ref- colloquially referred to as Islamic bonds, which isn't entirely accurate because for the most because part. Because don't call them bonds. Right. Exactly. <laughs> because for the most part, right. they're not debt interest instruments and they're not allowed to charge interest because that but is. They look like a duck and they quack, quack like, like a, a duck, duck and they are <laughs> traded on debt exchanges like a duck. But, but there is, we're gonna, I'll, I'll pretend they're not a duck. There is actually a... Like, actually, this is a cow. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a cow. It's, it, it, it does raise these amazing kind of ontological questions. But yes, basically, you thought the Jews were good at like, finding ways around religious you know, <laughs> restrictions. I, I was about to say we're, we're going to get back to the news. <laughs> yes. Anyway, yeah. you know, like if you if you want if you want the sort of Talmudic experts, I'll tell you where you want to look is in is in Islamic finance because exactly. under Islamic strictures, you are not allowed to charge interest. Yes, you are also now to, not allowed to trade debt at a discount. You're also not allowed to borrow money on the interbank market because that's considered too risky. Wait, you're not allowed to trade debt at a discount? Because that's correct. That's exactly. It. There are debts to cooks, but they don't trade. So there aren't a lot of them, but for that very reason. Wait, so, okay. So what is, if it's not interest, what oh, is it? it's technically a percentage of profits. So, so okay. it's they're pretending the debt's equity. It, no, it, well, it is. is. It is. And this is oh, okay. why, again... It's like really... preferred equity. Yes. <laughs> so what happens to this in Chapter 11? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, they actually have been defaults. Although the many of the largest issuers of Sukuks are actually sovereigns or uh, quasi-sovereigns, so like state-owned enterprises like oil and gas companies or um, Islamic banks. Okay. So, okay, the way it works, most Sukuks are asset-based uh, Sukuks, which means that essentially I need money, so... I essentially set up this vehicle that then issues the Sukuk. Yeah. Then investors buy the Sukuk. They give me money. I buy like a plant. And then the money that comes from that plant technically is then going to be paid out to the Sukuk holders. They're going to get a percentage of those profits. And then when their Sukuk matures, they're going to have their percentage of the asset bought back. But- <laughs> so- and, now- and, and this is like you should... I want to. I really want everyone listening to this podcast to be able to hear the air quotes that <laughs> that Anna is like putting all over what she's talking about. Like everything, just imagine every single thing when you know that she, she said came with like air quotes. Right. Exactly. Because the, the other thing that's just fascinating about this is the profit rate is often like based on LIBOR. So it's like this entire <laughs> Wait, thing. Really? Is, yes. Wow. It's, so. 
entirely. These are so it's not at all related. It's not even like we're actually getting a set percentage of the profits. No, that would be equity. That would be yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this is the other reason, and this is actually is it like LIBOR plus? Is that well? No, it's not that it's LIBOR plus. It's that when they're trying to figure out what they're going to be charging you, it's based on where LIBOR is. It's not based on what profits this asset is actually going to generate. Also, in theory, when you in order to be Sharia compliant, the Sukuk is not supposed to guarantee that you get your principal back. It's supposed to be based on the market value of the asset. If the value went up, you'd get more. If the value went down, you get less. That is not how it works in practice. Because they have a purchase agreement. This sounds a lot like... uh just like a lot of the early asset backed securities, like in general, like it just that's I mean, different though. Though it's, it's, yeah, diff- it's, it's different. It's, it's also it's, it's also not? different. Well, because I, I could go into the details of exactly how that I I did a very abbreviated version of the the vehicle. That's it's not the same as like a mortgage backed security. Let's put it that. Way. Okay. So so in any case, because you technically Jordan, do own a percentage. The, okay. All of which is to say, yeah, that there are these Sharia compliant debt securities, which not debt to, securities, <laughs> which are debt securities, and that which like. Through a bunch of legal and um, structural ledger domain, have managed to persuade some kind of Sharia court that they're not debt securities. Um, and now, because it's all so complicated, sometimes they trip up. And it turns out that some Sharia court somewhere will determine, or some observer somewhere will determine that, oh, whoops, we thought we were. Yeah, issuing something which was Sharia compliant, and it turns out we weren't. And right. then what happened? Yeah, and again, because this isn't, it's an issue of, in terms of what is and what is not Sharia compliant, it's not like there's one Sharia court. Every country has their own. So this is this is the thing I wanted to ask you about. So we actually do have a news hook here, too. Oh, right? yes, yes, yes. So, like, basically, the UAE wanted to become, like, the center of Islamic finance. This is what I've read with, like, they wanted to be the people that specialize this. And now it's all blowing the fuck up because of, like, this one court case. Yes. Okay. Dana Gas, which is a UAE-based natural gas company, has an outstanding sukuk. And basically, they're arguing that they cannot make payments. They cannot make their profit payments because... The Sukuk is no longer Sharia compliant. So they're arguing that the creditors have to accept their restructuring of this Sukuk because that's the only way they can continue to make them payments, which is entirely not based in reality. So wait, so who said it wasn't Sharia compliant? Like, Oh, well, is- this is interesting. So well, this is where it gets complicated because on the one hand, it really isn't Sharia compliant. Though they're because essentially they're guaranteeing you your principal back because the profit rate is clearly based on an interest rate, not actual profits. They really should never have been structured this way. But originally they got someone to say they were Sharia compliant. Now the like the Sharia courts in or in UAE are saying it's no longer Sharia compliant. Okay. And they're okay. And also they're in Sharjah, which is important because right now the case is being tried in London. Okay. And in Shaja. In London, it's probably pretty sure that the London courts are not going to say this is okay, but they could get that. Wait, the, the London courts are going to say what? Because- They're prob- the London courts are probably going to argue that they have to continue to make these payments. Okay. Most likely. Now, if this were being tried in uh, like Abu Dhabi or something, it would be more likely that they'd be friendly to creditors. But most Sukuk bonds are issued under English law. Well, most, no. Most. Sukuk bonds that are sold to international investors are issued under English law. Most Sukuk are actually held by local investors. They're not investment grade. They're, you know, local currency denominated. So, yeah. But yes, the vast majority are that are issued to international investors under London law, which is why this is in the London courts to begin with. Okay. And so, okay. So the London courts are going to find basically on 
in in favor of the investors. Most likely. And then what happens? So then, in theory, they would argue that, no, you have to work with your creditors to figure out some way to pay off these, to restructure these bonds where you're going to continue to pay. And because right now, what um, Dana Gass is arguing is that they're saying, okay, what we're going to do is say, we can pay off, we're going to swap these for a new Sukuk, which will enable us to pay off the full value at any point we want to with no penalty. And we're going to cut the profit rate in half. And London's the, like, the profit rate being what most people like think the, interest, the rate. interest rate exactly right. from yeah. like eight percent to four percent. So they want to give their investors a big fucking haircut, basically. So it yes, comes down to exactly, and London's going to be like, no, we They're don't care like, what no, new interpretation exactly. of Sharia. Right, but then in the UAE, you've got this right, so kind you, of parallel case. Exactly. So you could end up with a split decision. And the other thing that I think is interesting about this is that if you actually look at Dana Gas's finances, this is clearly not about Sharia law. <laughs> This is about their cash position. <laughs> so I guess this this is what it comes back to for me is like so you have like these courts in the in the UAE that are charged with deciding what is and isn't Sharia right. compliant, and you have Islamic scholars. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So how how different that is that than like coming back to the Jews, just because I have a little bit more context there, like a bunch of rabbis pouring over, the, actually pouring over the Talmud and just being like, we think this is what it means. That's like exactly the is, same. It is, is it really? Because yeah. yeah, that's, that's fucking terrifying no, it's, to me. No, it's, it's a bit like fights over whether something is kosher or not. So why yeah. on earth would anybody want to buy into an instrument that is subject to that, like the caprices because of... <laughs> up until this point, and granted, these things really didn't start to take off until the early 2000s. And... It is a pretty big market at this point. Granted, the international market is still reasonably small, but overall, Islamic finance is like a you know two trillion dollar yeah. um, two trillion dollar market. So the issue is up until this point, we haven't run into this issue. There was one previous time where there was a Kuwaiti investment firm that also tried to do this, but it was thrown out pretty quickly. Yeah. So this hasn't been a major concern, but it has meant that as an investor, because you know you have this risk, you're going to get a higher profit rate. Okay. And if you know... Uh, Chasing yield. Exactly. And this is why this is very important, actually. This is part of the reason that you've had a lot of issuance over this past year or so. Partly it's been because oil and gas prices are so low, so you have a lot of people. But it's also because they know that rates are probably going to start increasing. So right now you have a lot of investors who are still willing to buy these instruments, but they know that could change. So a lot of companies are trying to get as much as they can. So has this case had any deleterious effect on the demand for sukuks? Initially, there was some thought that it did because there was like a a few week period right after this um, initial uh, statement was released from the company where it seemed like uh, demand was lower. Now it seems like maybe it's it's okay. The question becomes moving forward. If they were to win this case, the market would be in turmoil. I mean, yeah. there's some argument that maybe it wouldn't be as big of a deal for the sovereigns or for domestic borrowers. But if you're talking about international investors. Yeah. So again, so who. So you said that there are Sharia courts and there are scholars. Is there like one particular court that everyone's going to have to defer to who's like going to be the one to make these? Or like, no, is there, no. there's no centralized no. authority. No, there isn't. And actually, the guy who's like the granddaddy of Islamic finance has said like 85 percent of the Sukuk are invalid. Oh, Jesus Christ. So- <laughs> So, so, and it's actually interesting. Could you wait? So, is there like? Wait, wait. Can you stop? Can, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. No. Uh, is there like? Is there a country they could go to that like would have a slightly less crazed court system, less likely to invalidate? Yeah, it's system? called London. Okay, so they yeah, could, I mean, so, so yeah, this is the issue. So but London like, in the Islamic world, I guess. 
Why, I mean, why does it need to be in the Islamic world? That's actually a good question. Right. I, I mean, yeah. granted, it is true that obviously the vast majority of Sukkoks that have been issued have shockingly been from the Islamic world. Now, the UK was the first non-Muslim um, majority country that issued a Sukkok in 2014 and actually had tremendous appetite for it. Yeah. There is definitely the possibility that non-Muslim majority countries could continue or start to issue more of these. And maybe those would be seen as safer. But partly, if you you can get a Sukkok from a Muslim-majority country. But if it's issued under English law, that yeah. should provide you with additional protection. And yeah. this is why this case is so important. Exactly. Because now we're going to see just how much protection that English law gives the bondholders. Right. Yeah. I guess, you know, I, I just want to go back to like my baffle or kind of, I, I want to explore my bafflement over this a little bit more. Because I, I, when I talk about how there's no authority and that's blowing my mind, in some ways that doesn't seem so different from the US court system. Because like, Laws are up for interpretation. And like you have lots of lawyers that are trying to convince the judge that this is how And it, to me. OK, so instead of a lawyer, you have an Islamic scholar. Why? I guess it kind of makes me like I, my mind is reeling at the whole idea of this is that in the U.S. or most most countries, most any country, you're dealing with statutes for the most part that are like written to be interpreted this way and like are can be changed and thought and like altered. And, and there's like a long and, and there there's a long history of jurisprudence over how to interpret these things. Whereas it seems like when you're just dealing with whether or not something complies with Sharia, which is very complicated and ornate, it's still not a statute. Right? Yeah, and like, although I would I would argue that what we're seeing here is really not that dissimilar from what you see in many EM countries. When you deal with bankruptcy courts in many other EM countries, it also, the laws change, how the laws are interpreted are just very different. This is something I've talked about in the past where we in the US or in the UK, we have something called seniority, where you assume that if you're a creditor, you have seniority over equity holders. That is often not really the case in EM because if you want to get a restructuring through, you have to get those equity holders on board. Yeah, And this is actually very similar to what we're seeing here. Okay, So it's not as out of the ordinary as it sounds if you do investing in EM. Yeah. So and, really and I can... think, yeah, the, the lesson of this story is that it's very easy for investors in the US or the UK to think that financial structures are these incredibly robust things which are shored up by centuries of precedent and jurisprudence and statutes. Whereas, in fact, and in reality, in most of the world, it's all much more contingent and crumbly and weird than that. And that's why, as EM investors, you often make fun of developed market investors when they try to come into these countries and they think they know what they're doing and they all get destroyed <laughs> because they have no idea. All right. I think it's time for a numbers round. Okay. Uh, Anna, what's your number? So my number is 57%. So 57% of Germans between the ages of 18 to 21 support Angela Merkel, which is actually higher than the overall country, which is 53%, which I thought was interesting just because like she's old. She's old. <laughs> and the CDU is a center right party, which you don't normally associate with the youngest possible voters. Right, the, the young young people, they, they tilt left. Right? right. Normally. And so and you often have a lot of people, voters, too, 
especially young voters who don't necessarily love the CDU, but they love Merkel. Yeah, because she's like become like the like superstar face of, yes. uh, you know, modernity. Right? No, it's true. <laughs> in, in like the savior of liberal democracy. democracy yeah. If you see these CDU posters they have throughout Germany, they are just a giant photo of Angela Merkel's face with a teeny tiny CDU in the corner. It's amazing to me. And I love Angela Merkel. She's also like, just like really memeable. She's like really she she's really good, good at like throwing shade at Trump in subtle ways. And Putin? Yeah, and Putin. Like just like oh she's, the Putin eye roll yeah I just say her, her eye rolls are great she's just like an incredibly memeable world yes. leader and that's that's important so great so important. a little bit of context here the German election is on Sunday and the Chancellor Angela Merkel is going to wind up getting reelected for like the nine hundredth time <laughs> yes she exactly been in, she's she's become the one respectable global leader mm-hmm. she's basically the leader of the world at this point. Which no one really expected when she became Chancellor no. originally, but she's grown into this role and it's quite impressive, especially like only a year ago. Like no one really saw this coming. Well, this I, mean, well I mean, she was, it was, she definitely had a dip in her popularity because of a lot of the anti immigrant sentiment you had in Germany and the rest of Europe and the rise of the alternative for Deutschland, which is this far right and, party. And the, and maybe that's part of the, popularity that she has among the youth is precisely that she is considered to be more pro-immigrant. Than yeah, many I, I do think that's part of it. She has this really interesting mix where she will actually go against her own party on certain issues, like in terms of immigrants, where in terms of economic issues, you know, she's center right. But when it comes to these social issues, she's farther left. Some of us haven't quite forgotten how uh, Germany nearly cracked the European Union in half during the whole Greek crisis. Or Okay, but, <laughs> if we want to go, we could go into our no, like but that, but that Merkel will... v. Cyprus, and I'm sorry, I am Team Merkel in that debate, and I know people are going to criticize me for that. <laughs> but no, but also that plays well in Germany in terms yeah, of yeah, domestic yeah, politics. Yeah. I know, no, it plays very well. Yeah. And that's so. I... What's your number, Jordan? Four. Okay, what's four? <laughs> sorry, I, I just wanted to see Felix's look. Uh, four. That's how many months apparently hackers were chilling out on Equifax's servers uh, before it was the the hack was discovered. Um, and this is actually like kind of instills some confidence and weirdly instills some confidence in Equifax. Well, no, it doesn't instill confidence. I take that back. Well, yeah, I don't. Wait, I that. Say, <laughs> so, yeah, so I don't buy that let, one let, at let, all. Let me. Let me. I'm not gonna quite slate pitch this, but so. When the story first came out about the hack, everyone, myself included, noted that all Equifax had to do to prevent this was install a security update that had come out one month before. It turns out the hack had happened way before the security update. So at least, at least you can't say that that's how they screwed up. Now, I mean, nonetheless, I mean, they didn't know, like... The company any, with any all company. of our financial information, social security numbers, didn't notice hackers. Just as we said last week, one job. Yeah, one job. <laughs> so, okay. Anyway, so that's that's my number. One my job. number is two hundred and eleven billion dollars. Okay. Which is the size of what is almost certainly the world's largest money market fund. Um, it's big and boring. And, <laughs> just like, and just I'm, like I'm fucking. Kansas or something. <laughs> uh, and and the name of this money market fund is Yue Bao. Okay. And it's part of Alipay. Oh, And wow. it's basically um, 370 million Chinese people have money in their Alipay wallets and are keeping that money in this one money market fund, which has now risen to $211 
billion dollars. Wow. So this is like you sometimes hear conversations about like tech firms in the U.S. becoming banks because they have like whatever. And this seems like actually almost a version of that where it's just like, OK. Oh, you, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you it's just you're so fucking big and you have so much money coursing around. And they system. are paying real interest. Like they're paying like four percent interest. And a bunch of Chinese people are saying, great, this is better than the bank account. And they're moving all of their money into their Alipay wallets because that's where they get Do you a nice rate of interest. Jeff Bezos is like eyeing that, <laughs> like, like just just licking his chops. Well, like, I mean, it's, thinking, it's, like, I yeah, could probably do that. not because, <laughs> no, you know, yeah. you don't want to be a bank. You don't want to be a yeah, depository you're going to be institution. Mm. No one wants to be a depository institution in this country. But sure, in principle. Yeah. Um, if you didn't have all of the regulation of depository institutions, then Jeff Bezos would love it if you just paid for everything on Amazon out of your Amazon bank account. And then and lived in your Amazon house and, and ate then, your Amazon food. No, but, but more to the point that you, you kept all of your money yeah. on deposit with Amazon and they could just invest that as they like. Yeah, but that would be a nice like free source of funding. Wonderful, for Amazon. a wonderful float. <laughs> um, for very good reasons, he doesn't want to do that in the U.S. But it's ob- equally obvious why Alibaba and Alipay are jumping into the opportunity in China. Okay, so that is it for us this week. I need to tell you all that on November fifteen. At 7.30 p.m. in the Bell House in Brooklyn, we are going to have our food show. Yes. It's going to be a live show. Um, for tickets, you want to go to slate.com slash live. Those of you who are Slate Plus members will get 35% off. So if you want to go see this show and you want to become a Slate Plus member, make sure you get your sequencing right and become a Slate Plus member first at slate.com slash money plus and then you go to slate.com slash live and buy your tickets so dan schrader our producer says that it's 30 percent off and not 35 percent off which you know is i consider to be like pedantry (laughs) (laughs) but but okay dan it's 30 percent off either way you want to go to slate.com slash money plus first Sign up for Slate Plus, then go to slate.com slash live, buy your tickets, come see us on November 15. It's going to be a pretty fun show, and it's going to be food-related, and it's going to be awesome, and it is going to sell out. The last show sold out pretty quickly, so if you want to do it, um, I would probably recommend getting your tickets sooner rather than later. Other than that, it just... um, Falls to me to thank the pedant, Mr. Dan Schrader, for producing this and the man who cares about our listeners' and wallets. And to, to ask you to um, keep those emails coming slate money at slate.com. Thank you very much. And we will talk to you next week on Slate Money. I got the best for so much as you. 